Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. Zahir, can you believe it's been a year since we launched Flatbush in Maine? I cannot believe 12 episodes have gone by so quickly. I know. It's really been a labor of love. And like all intellectual endeavors, our podcast has evolved. We've gone into the archives. We've followed the collections where they've led us. And we've reacted to unexpected events. <clears throat> the election, um, which really gave us an opportunity to show how important it is to bring historical thinking to present day events. Our year anniversary is as good a time as any to reflect back on a year of history podcasting and to revisit some of our favorite segments of Flatbush in Maine. For, for historians, it's, it's just like a joy to find when you find that story that one story that does all that work for you that you can just like unpack all of the issues through um so yeah so much Yeah, yeah 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 there is a um there is a broad and demographic approach here which is that we have to save everything we have to understand the expanse of it but there's also an intimacy in the things that are being saved in their archives that has to be there to tell the whole story of the past. And thinking about how to incorporate or use oral histories or deal with oral histories in this podcast, we've been triangulating three things we've had to keep in mind. One is the importance of listening. The second point on that triangle is interpretation. And then the third point in this triangle is accessibility. When we first started this podcast, we had a lot of discussion about the direction it would take, what kinds of content we would cover, how we would approach history. Yeah, to show people that history shapes the world that they live in in ways that are obvious, in ways that are actually incredibly subtle, but are, but but they're always there, right? And I think in this first segment of Flatbush in Maine, we really come back to the idea that part of the practice of history is the practice of storytelling and you know to do that we got a lot of help we did um this was kind this was really fun we had a chance to talk to some of the leading uh scholars and researchers doing cutting-edge work on brooklyn's past and present one episode that comes to mind is episode three queering brooklyn spaces which um came out last june of 2016 where Hugh Ryan took us on a tour, traversing time and space, exploring this hidden history of queer life on the Brooklyn waterfront. The waterfront had 
a great density of queer life historically and today for a lot of different reasons, um, primarily revolving around economics, that being queer often, if you were visibly or self-identified as queer, meant that you couldn't find a job in a lot of places, meant that more desirable areas of the city were maybe closed off to you. It was also a higher crime area. It had fewer cops. It had fewer lights. It had fewer public promenades. You know, these weren't things they were looking for. No one wants a place with fewer amenities. But the truth is that what comes along with that is often a kind of paradoxical safety, right? When the cops are dangerous, not having cops creates a kind of safety, even though it then also opens you up to all other kinds of violence. And that I want to make clear that in talking about these spaces, while they offer possibility, they also offer a lot of danger. I'm actually really glad we pulled that quote. I mean, Hugh told so many amazing stories in that segment, but what really strikes me about what we just listened to is that Hugh is giving us actually a new methodology, a new way of looking at space Mm -hmm. and history, Um, one that is about revealing things, about mining for new evidence of histories that are sometimes deliberately hidden from view. Yeah, I think, you know, when he used that phrase paradoxical safety, it really um, kind of shook me in terms of thinking about, you know, the relationship between policing and personal freedom and safety and how a place could be both a place of refuge and also a place of danger. And I think rooting the histories of people in the places in which they lived or worked or played and and not just saying, oh, they were here. Um, They were on the waterfront or they were in this place or they were in that place, but why they were in this place, right? And that these were decisions that people made based on certain characteristics about these spaces and that those characteristics were the result of policy or neglect or increased police activity or, or what have you. And I think that's one of the things that I think was really fascinating about Hugh's story, that the history that he was bringing us was to emphasize both the kind of importance of a place as well as the identity of the people who are in that place. Yeah, and you know, while we're talking about place, and one of the episodes to me that really kind of brought me to a Brooklyn of the past, like immersed me in an environment of the Brooklyn of the past, was actually our first episode, which aired in April of 2016, Histories of Waste in Brooklyn, in which we talked to an environmental historian named Elizabeth Pillsbury about a group of people living way out in Jamaica Bay called Baymen. In the 19th century, too, at the peak of oystering in New York City, shellfish were cultivated. Oystermen would buy seed or spat, really small oysters, and would then clear a bottom land beneath the harbor that they would keep free of predators and and would keep free of um, sediment so that those oysters could grow and be ready for market. Um, And it was was one of the ways that oystermen um, and baymen made their living, Uh, this kind of small, um, uh, small scale oyster farming that was widespread in Jamaica Bay. And so here is the twist, I think, in the in the history of, of Baymen. Um, as they are cultivating oysters in Jamaica Bay, the city of Brooklyn is actually building a major sewage system that is emptying the majority of raw sewage being generated in growing city of Brooklyn 
into Jamaica Bay. And we have this period of decades in which the Jamaica Bay men continue to cultivate oysters that are essentially sitting in raw sewage. All right, so let me tell you the story about Calvin Huffmeyer. Calvin Huffmeyer uh, was a bayman out in um, Canarsie, uh, which was kind of a small community of baymen out there on Jamaica Bay. And in 1889, the Flatbush sewage line opened up, dumping right into the particular area of that bay in Canarsie that he had his lease um, to, to Oyster, uh, his, his lease um, grounds. And he had spent... Calvin Huffmeyer had spent a tremendous amount of money buying seed and planting that seed. And when that sewage line opened, it destroyed his oyster pot. So let's just like have a little moment and think, oh, so this sewage line opens and it smothers. The sewage coming out of the sewage line smothers and kills this crop of oysters that he would otherwise have brought to market. The oysters that lived, if he were to have had oysters that had lived, he would have still been able to sell those to market. So he sued the city, not because they made the waters unfit to grow oysters, but because they destroyed his product. And he actually wins his lawsuit. What's ironic is that the other oystermen that were just a little bit further away from the sewage outlet were still selling their oysters into New York City's Fulton Market. I remember when we were talking with Beth at that moment when she told us that story. And now at this moment, hearing it again, I was gagging. (laughs) (laughs) That just sounds really, really gross. You know, I'm not an oyster eater, but if I were, I would not want to be an oyster eater (laughs) after hearing this story. One of the things that I think was really important about the, the way Beth told us this story was to illustrate the, the real human impact of the environment and, and our impact on the environment and in return, symbiotic. How, yeah, yeah. This, the environment's impact on, yeah. on us. Yeah. And, you know, and not to be like a complete geek about this, but to me, it reinforces the importance of demographics and what a vast and growing and diverse and dense place Brooklyn was, but that Brooklyn that we're thinking about when I say that was located kind of in downtown Brooklyn near the Brooklyn Bridge and starting to spread out. But this area, you know, as the crow flies, Jamaica Jamaica Bay is actually over 10 miles wow. away from the yeah. heart of Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, Brooklyn at the turn of the century was like a, hun- um, a million, um, 1.2 million people. Flatlands, where Jamaica Bay is, was 8,000 people. Wow. And there's That's an easily overlooked population. Exactly. And underdocumented, right? And so Beth, the way that Beth was able to put these people's lives together was not through like their copious records. It was court cases, which is really only why we know about Calvin Huffmeyer. So again, there's like a politics to those demographics right there. You know, and it's really, you know, for for historians, it's, it's just like a joy to find when you find that story that Mm -hmm. one story that does all that work for you that you can just like unpack all of the issues through um so yeah so much yeah 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 yeah. sometimes we found one of the best ways to explore the past was by talking about the present and um on one of our episodes episode six titled school segregation in brooklyn we did just that, and, and to help us with that, we had Nicole Hannah-Jones, a writer for New York Times Magazine, 
who has written extensively about um, education in New York City. And in this exchange, Nicole explained the importance of using a term like segregation, which many people uh, see as referring to a historical period in the past. She explained why it was important to still use that term to describe current education policy in New York City. If you actually look at the history, clearly um, the, desegregation, the segregation that you find in the North was created through official policy, through government action from the federal level on down, um, through policy decisions that are ongoing. And so to call that de facto, I think, is actually just incorrect. And you look at when this usage really becomes popular, um, it's when the movement for integration starts coming north. And suddenly you have congressmen who were very, very gleefully happy to kind of uh, punish the South, who are now like, no, this this segregation we have up here, though in schools it's just as bad as the South, and housing is worse in the South, um, that this is a different kind of segregation that we uh, have no legal obligation to undo. So it becomes a tool, and it's a tool that we continue to embrace, except now we would say the segregation we see all over the country is all de facto, and therefore we have no legal or moral obligation to do anything about it. One of the really interesting things about Nicole's reporting on this topic is that she's not only an expert in sort of the history and current issues related to education and segregation, she's also kind of experiencing it in her own family life. And so Nicole talked really candidly um, about her experiences, not just as a reporter, but as a mother of a kid attending a Brooklyn school, PS 307 which was rezoned in 2015 and 2016, and during that period became a a real lightning rod for racial and economic inequity. I know very well all the research on segregated schools, and I pretty much have, like, made my, you know, my mission to write about um, the way the segregated schools harm children and how it's, we'll never have an equal system as long as we allow this to persist, but at the same time, through my career, I've just run into so many people who are fighting against this thing, but in their own lives, making very different choices. And I just simply could not do that. I could not be someone who um, is castigating the system and then taking my privileged part in that system. Probably the most radical of my thinking, and it's the part that's the hardest for me to actually say out loud, um, because it makes me feel like a bad parent. But I don't feel like my daughter deserves more. I just, um, I think she deserves a quality education, but I don't think that for luck of circumstance that she should be getting a better education than the kids in my school, my neighborhood who were not born to parents who were educated and who have been able to um, get middle class income. I understand that I, being a New York Times reporter, going into a school like that immediately changed the dynamics of that school, that that is a school that becomes impossible to ignore, that becomes a school that um, officials have to pay attention to, and I can either hoard that resource with other parents who have those same resources, or I can share that resource and try to actually make a difference. You know, Julie and I have had these experiences talking to our guests where we um, like to say that was a mic drop moment. And uh, I remember when Nicole told us that story, 
Wow, that was that was definitely one of those moments. We've had so many. We've been so fortunate to have, have so many mic drop moments throughout the last year with these 12 episodes. I, I was going to say the same thing. It's like there are definitely moments where we've been like, oh, my gosh, we are so lucky to be able to do this. And Nicole's interview was definitely one of them. And another was when we got to meet um, David Levering Lewis, um, who is one of the sort of pillars of our field and who has written um, a remarkable two-volume biography of W.E.B. Du Bois among the many, many books that he's written. This was one intellectual giant talking about another intellectual giant. And if you've studied 20th century American history, African-American history, uh, sociology, philosophy, you will have come across W.E.B. Du Bois. If you're walking (laughs) through Brooklyn and pass by a building called 31 Grace Court, you might not know that that was the residence of W.E.B. Du Bois. And so we had a chance to talk with uh, David Levering Lewis about Du Bois' history in Brooklyn and his significant legacy. And so the Du Bois is moved into 31 Grace Court with the Biedermeyer furniture and the great piano that Paul Robeson will play regularly. Uh, it, it becomes, I suppose, the most significant address in Brooklyn for a time uh, because, of course, the United Nations delegations are not far. And to visit Du Bois, the Indian delegation, the uh, China, Czechoslovakian, the Chinese, the Russian. And so there's a constant stream of visitors uh, across the bridge uh, to bringing vodka and various things to the Du Boises. And they had a wonderful garden as well. And this drives J. Edgar Hoover and the Justice Department insane. Uh, and so the uh, State Department rules that delegations cannot go to Brooklyn to that address. (laughs) The more you look at uh, the life of this man, the more in its great variety and its clarity, the more it is emblematic of the problems and the the promise of, of a people. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. I have the fortune of um, my workspace being located in the Othmer Library here at Brooklyn Historical Society, which is, I think, gives me one of the most beautiful views uh, certainly in the building and probably in, I would say, all of Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> um, it And the Othmer Library houses BHS's collections. And, you know, the archives are the foundation of the historian's practice and certainly the heart of, of this institution. And their, you know, their value lies in the unique stories that they hold. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about manuscript collections is that they are not books that are reproduced and republished. They are often singular um, records of historical lives, institutions, experiences, moments, movements. Um, So in a lot of ways, what we like to do here on the podcast is just tell you that they exist, right? Like, come and see them. They're incredible. We like to put pictures up on our Mm -hmm. show notes. Mm -hmm. 
I think the other thing about archives that we talk about though on here is that they're also um, and the archive is a concept. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's and it's a constantly evolving one, and one as with everything that we talk about that has its own power relations. And you know, I think archives can be intimidating for especially for people first time researchers i remember yeah, do you remember your first I do, archive I, do. I totally remember mine um, you know there's this whole like ritual when you go to an archive how you just like check in and all that kind of stuff and then you know sometimes you're looking at documents you're not really sure where it's going to take you and so i think one of the things that i really like about the segment that we've done here for this this last year is kind of model some of the ways these archival materials can help tell the stories of Brooklyn's past. Yeah, Zaheer, when you say, you know, modeling document analysis, it's not necessarily an intuitive thing, but it is the bread and butter of what we do as mm-hmm. historians. Mm-hmm. And when I when I think about unlocking a document, I always come back to our second episode um, about Brooklyn's waterfront and talking to our colleague, Katie Lasdow, who is the assistant public historian here, about how we started from one death notice in the New York Times in the 1870s and ended up putting together this incredibly complex web of one 19th century immigrant's life. From that, you know, two sentences, I think it's two really long sentences, we were able to find out not only that there was a guy named Michael Harkins, but that he was 45 years old when he died that it was in the year 1873, and this was the best part, that, um, well, aside from the fact that he died, poor guy, but the best part was that we were able to figure out where he lived, and they took the the people who found him when he was killed um, at the Empire Stores, took him to his home, which was 195 Plymouth Street, which is in the neighborhood of Vinegar Hill here in Brooklyn. So from there, Katie took that data that she was able to mine from this tiny death notice and pulled together collections of census records, immigration records, newspaper coverage, and so much more to better understand working class life in 19th century Brooklyn and the milieu that the Harkins family lived in. Today we go to Dumbo and we're surrounded by fancy restaurants, fancy apartments, all these things. And you forget that underneath all of that shiny new um, patina of development is, are these legacies of folks who lived in this neighborhood before it was anything like that. And the Harkins family is one place where we can begin to see that story. I, um, um, to our listeners, I like to rib Julie a little bit about two of her favorite words and talking about the historian's craft which is can i guess yeah what are those two words Julie? Dig? <laughs> yes i dig we, historians dig, dig and dive um, and silence and, well i was just thinking <laughs> dig and dive and i think um i think what katie kind of illustrates is yeah why that is an appropriate metaphor there's a kind of archaeological function that historians do we get these kind of skeletal historical records and we have to flesh them out and then we have to go to all these different sources to kind of build out from this very skeletal finding and um, that is how we're able to recover these um, lost people in history these lost figures and um, you know I remember uh, when we talked with Katie in this episode I was just blown away by how elaborate 
uh, a telling or retelling of this family's life she was able to accomplish um, in that kind of archaeological process. Yeah, her experience um, finding the Harkins family is it captures two things about the social um, historian's practice, like the serendipity, the fact mm-hmm. that we were able to find this death yeah. notice. And like a side note on that is just that is the unbelievable value of the digitization of newspapers. But that's maybe it's a, yeah. a whole other yeah. episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then after the serendipity, a rigor yeah. of the systematic way that she then sort of mined, mined things like census records and other things to piece together to sort of weave this tapestry of his life. It's quite beautiful. But even with that, there are things that we will never know about the Harkins' family. You know, their um, private communications among each other, how they spoke to each other, what they said to each other. How they felt. How they felt. The, the flip coin of the archives is the intimate glance that it allows you into people's lives, the way that they talked, the way that they communicated with other people, things like journals, letters, family heirlooms. But it really gives this almost unexpected glimpse into a person's psyche. And in some ways, it's the best way to analyze like the sort of the bread and butter of, of gender and intersectionality. One of our conversations about one of those collections sticks out in my mind, and that was in episode seven, Brooklyn's Women Politicians, and that was our October 2016 episode, where we, in the segment, looked at the Rashetta Randolph Wallace papers. And Rashetta Randolph Wallace was a longtime secretary in the national headquarters of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, an organization that for the century has been at the forefront of social progress for not just African Americans, but all Americans. And reading her correspondence gave us some insight that challenged what we thought we knew about the people who worked for or on behalf of this organization. Yeah, so if I recall correctly, in this clip, we are going to listen to an exchange between Wallace and Mary White Ovington, who was the woman whom Rochetta Randolph Wallace worked for 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 decades at the NAACP. And Ovington was at one point the president of the institution. It's important to know that um, Mary White Ovington was white and Rochetta Randolph Wallace was black. And this is a letter to, again, to Randolph from her longtime boss and friend, Mary White Ovington. Yeah, this letter is dated 1945, September 18, and she started working for Mary Ovington in 1905. So it's a long This is a 40-year history with these two people. And uh, I'll read it, and of course we'll, we'll post it in our show notes. My dear, I suppose it had to happen, but I hate, hate to think of the NAACP without you in it. I won't talk about it. There's little to take me there now. So it's very like, I'm so sorry that you're leaving. So she's retiring. She's retiring. Ovington continues. Will you have any time to do typing for me? I do hope so. I want to pay for the typing of my book myself, not to have the association. I'm assuming do it. Shall you have any time? 
so there's it's just oh my gosh it's such a complex relationship because there's such an eff- <laughs> there's a, such an affection in this letter yeah. it's signed love mwo you can tell that they're close but there is such presumption i think in the in one breath you know sort of um praising and um and congratulating somebody on their retirement and in the next asking them to continue to do that labor yeah i think there's a sense of entitlement here that the history doesn't change that sense of entitlement the affection doesn't change that sense of entitlement it is at the in the most generous reading it's bad form as they would say <laughs> right but i think we can we we can be a little less generous i think we need to i think what is so illuminating about this and this is what is so beautiful about manuscript collections is it illustrates the way that complex and unequal power relations yeah. play out in the most intimate and everyday of ways this set of letters I think beautifully reveals the power dynamics between two women who have an incredibly complicated personal and Mm -hmm. professional Mm -hmm. relationship. Mary White Ovington was really seen um, as one of the more progressive white people um, in early 20th century um, America on this topic of uh, of race and racism at a moment that most historians characterize sort of the nadir of race relations in American history. And yet it's really clear from these letters that in very complicated ways, she internalized so many of the popular presumptions and preconceptions about race, class, social standing. One of the things I like about the exchange that you and I had is that we kind of illustrated the um, choices that historians have that or can make. Um, I think at one point I say something about this is not a generous reading or we can be a little bit less generous in this case. And I think, you know, that is uh, those are the kinds of things that Mm -hmm. historians make decisions about, usually hopefully informed by larger historical context and other sources. Right. That kind of help you uh, determine what angle to choose. But it is it it is open. Right. It is open. So, yeah. And actually. Hearing you say that, Zahir, it also to me highlights like a kind of a limitation of the of the medium of the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the experience in the archives, which is very difficult to replicate on like a an episode that you want to keep under you know twelve thousand hours, right. is <laughs> that I think in this in this segment we looked at two or three letters. Right. Um, they were in a folder of like forty letters. Right. Right. Which was in a box right. Right. of 12 folders, right. each containing 40 right. letters. And to understand this relationship, you have to read all of them. Right. We can't understand this letter in a vacuum. And in some ways, um, people have to trust our historical instincts that we're being true to the, to this letter. So here's a re- it's, it highlights a challenge for historians, which is the need to make this kind of global interpretation down to something that people can actually understand and 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 then interpret themselves in a few of our episodes we've explored archiving as a practice and different approaches to archiving in our fourth episode that dropped in july of last year hip-hop in brooklyn we had a chance to talk with and a hip-hop archivist martha diaz who talked to us about hip-hop not only as a subject to be archived, 
but as an archival practice itself. I would say that hip-hop culture is, um, although we have many elements, we are very organized in, in that sense. And like the, the producer, the DJ, more than all the other artists, I would say, they have a catalog, right? They know how to um, organize their tapes. You know, Africa Bambada donated 40,000 records to Cornell University. Questlove has his collection, and Bismarcky has it, and they know exactly where each record is. How, you know, they store it in places where they know they can't get it wet or it's certain temperature. And so we, we do this naturally. That is, I guess, a hip-hop practice that can be transferred into mm-hmm. um, preservation. Mm-hmm. When Martha said that, it really clicked for me about thinking or pushed me to think about an archive beyond the kind of traditional ways that we think of an archive. And, you know, it wasn't, it was, for me, it was unexpected. Like, I didn't expect to come away from this conversation thinking about hip hop as uh, an archival practice. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, temperature choices, places you store things, cataloging decisions, these are all acts of preservation. Yeah. And really what I came away from our interview with Martha thinking about is the idea of preservation, archival preservation as a political act. Yes, 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 yes. That there is a history that is being preserved within the music of hip hop, but also with the sort of the artifacts and documents and other accoutrements of hip hop. Not only is the importance of understanding how hip-hop can be understood as an archival practice, but the importance of the techniques and practices of preservation being used to preserve important histories, whether it be the history of hip-hop or any of the other kinds of histories that we've been exploring. That's exactly right. And in a weird way, it brings together the first two clips that we listened to, which is that there is a... Um, there is a broad and demographic approach here, which is that we have to save everything. We have to understand the expanse of it. But there's also an intimacy in the things that are being saved in, in Martha's archive and in other archives that has to be there to tell the whole story of the past. As a historian and a curator here at Brooklyn Historical Society, I find myself listening to a lot of oral histories. And it takes a, a long time. As somebody who is, you know, schooled in, you know, sort of a professional approach to oral history, it's my job to give, like, to honor the voice of yeah. the narrator that I'm listening yeah. to. But listening is different than reading, right? And this is something I'd say that you and I talk a lot about when we're shaping the podcast. Yeah, you can skim a document and you could probably skim a document, I don't know, sometimes five to ten times faster than it took to write the document. Mm -hmm. With oral history, you can only speed it up but so much, right? But you pretty much have to listen to it in real time. The time that it took to make that recording is the time it will likely take you to work through it. Which, for the record, is hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so in thinking about how to incorporate or use oral histories or deal with oral histories in this podcast, we've been triangulating 
three things we've had to keep in mind. One is the importance of listening. The idea of, of oral history is the essential skill and practice is the practice of listening to the narrator. And honoring their sometimes extemporaneous yes. way of telling their own story. Exactly. So you have listening. The second point on that triangle is interpretation. We are, as historians, coming to these sources to help us tell a particular story that might not be the story, you know, the specific story that the narrator is talking about. And then the third point in this triangle is accessibility. It's you, listener. Yeah, it's you, the listener. <laughs> we, we cannot, we do not want to have like two and three hour podcasts where you have to sit and listen to, as, as Julie mentioned, oftentimes a nonlinear, you know, narration. Uh, just because that's how people speak naturally. Sometimes we are nonlinear in this podcast <laughs> and the magic of editing brings that line back. So I think that this particular segment has found us walking this balance. There's no one formula. Depending on the subject or the narrator, we've approached it differently yeah, in each case. absolutely. I mean, I do remember very distinctly moments when we were like, there is no way we can add anything to what this person just said. Um, and even times that we tried and then realized that this should be should be left alone. And one of the voices that I'm thinking of um, is the oral history of Esther Cooper Jackson. And that was in episode 11, Du Bois in Brooklyn, um, in which she described operating in this sort of political and intellectual circle with Du Bois in mid-20th century Brooklyn. In this clip, Jackson talks about her role in establishing the literary and political journal Freedom Ways in the early 1960s. There was a big public event held at the Hotel Martinique mm -hmm. uh, in which we had a blown-up copy of the first issue. And um, we had one ballroom, and so it was such a huge turnout that we had to have the hotel open up and and extend the next ballroom. Oh. And it was though people were waiting, especially young writers and artists and educators, waiting for this. Um, and Dr. Du Bois and Shirley Graham Du Bois, his wife, were there. Ruby D. Ossie Davis, who were in it from the beginning. John Killens, the novelist. I don't know whether you've read any of his works. John Killens. And um, the main speaker was, um, I'll tell you his name in a minute, who was, um, Patrice Lumumba's representative at the United Nations, and you remember what happened to him. We, we had trouble clipping this clip, as, which is just part of the, what we were kind of explaining about sometimes, you know, an oral history as a source kind of stands on its own in a way that makes it very easy for the historian's enterprise in terms of recovering the, the information about the past. In this very short clip, you get a sense that Esther Cooper Jackson is a kind of narrator that um, packs into her her story uh, so many dates, names of people, places. I mean, really gives us a lot to go on if we want to reconstruct this episode. And yet, with all that data, um, you also are left with a deep sense of how it must have felt to be in the ballroom at the Hotel Martinique. Mm -hmm. 
when it was so packed and this just huge endeavor saw so much success and there was such a deep thirst on the part of young intellectuals at the time for this that they had to open the second ballroom which is something that oral history captures so beautifully is the way a moment felt and i think our next clip is as equally evocative and this is one that we featured in episode seven, Brooklyn's Women Politicians in October, where we listened to Elsie Richardson, who was an activist in Bedford-Stuyvesant, talking about the day that Robert Kennedy toured Bed-Stuy, um, which led to the formation of the Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation. In the car, as we drove around, was Don Benjamin, who was then the executive director of the Central Brooklyn Coordinating Council, Bobby Kennedy, myself, Lucille Rose, who was the first woman deputy mayor of New York City, Gabe Pressman, and uh, Ron Schiffman. And uh, we went to various spots. I recall that the first stop was on Atlantic Avenue where St. John's Hospital now exists. And I'll never forget the expression on the face of the woman uh, in the apartment when Senator Kennedy knocked on the door and um, walked in. Uh, She almost had a heart attack. (laughs) She was just shocked. (laughs) to find out that he would be coming to her house. As I recall, we spoke quite a bit about our deep empathy for this poor woman who has this knock at the door (laughs) and is greeted by like a cadre of like suited Pauls, politicians. Um, wanting to come and look at the conditions in which she and her right, family live. Right? right. And, you know, we talked about the tension trying to triangulate uh, between being uh, being good listeners, um, making things accessible, and also interpreting. And I, I have to be very honest, like, I've not always been comfortable in this triangulation because in the discussion, and that our listeners uh, will need to just go back and listen back to that and episode. Assess. Right. Um, <laughs> I sometimes worried, uh, were we quarreling with the narration or were we problematizing it? I felt bad afterwards. I'm be very honest. I felt bad afterwards. I was just like, I feel like I need to apologize to Elsie Richardson oh, because I, I didn't want to suggest that she was part of this movement or this moment where women, in particular black women, were being pathologized in poverty studies and using this this woman who was estranged, you know, this, whose house was being kind of inspected. And I think, I think it was important for us to talk about that. And I didn't want to do it in a way that cast a shadow on on Elsie Richardson and all that I think she really meant to this movement. Well, to relieve you of your guilt, <laughs> I think that, well, I, th- first of all, I think we agree that it w- it felt important to give that context right. of things like the Moynihan Report, the mm-hmm. pathologizing yeah. of feminized um, poverty right. in inner cities, especially right. northern inner cities, 
in order to understand why we came at it from that perspective. But what I also remember is us talking about the kind of particular gendered role that Richardson incredibly deftly played as a mediator between these two worlds. So she she lived that context, Right. right? Right. And she also knew that she wanted to get you know, I said later she says bricks and mortar. That's, That's her right. famous That's her right. famous line, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Um, I'm uh, show me bricks and mortar, right. and she was like, "I'm getting my bricks and mortar." Yeah, you know? and I mean, I think so. We we did. I did feel better as the conversation <laughs> evolved. I did, um, but I I was a little I was a little queasy. I mean, but I think we did mention that Elsie Richardson says like we don't need any more studies. What we yes. need are results. And to, to to paraphrase her, and so she certainly was not interested in being an accomplice to this pathologizing that sometimes even the most well-meaning liberals engaged in when they tried to address poverty in our cities. But I also want to say that we lionize people like Elsie Richardson, you know, I mean, she is one of these sort of unsung forces. We talked earlier about Du Bois as this force for cachet through history. So was Elsie Richardson, but she's like a lot less known. Right. Right. But she's human. You know what I mean? Right. And she was a politician. That's what we argued in this episode. Yeah. And politicians make choices and none of them are easy right and so i think that like to do true justice to her she would want us to acknowledge that she did the best she could with the circumstances that she was given but it was a complicated web that she was dealing with at that time and i think one of the things that makes her such a remarkable figure in brooklyn history and in american history is the way that she was able to negotiate that Zaheer and I were just looking at the calendar of Brooklyn Historical Society's upcoming events and like kind of blown away by the roster of people who are going to be here in May. So everyone should definitely check it out at brooklynhistory.org. So we had trouble picking our, our best events, but did the best we could. I picked an event that I'm really excited to attend on Tuesday, May 2nd um, at 6.30 p.m., in part because... Um, it ties back to a lot of the themes about facts and evidence and histor- historical integrity that Zahir and I tackled back in our, our live episode a few months ago. I also chose it in part because one of my dear colleagues and friends from graduate school, Nicole Hemmer, is speaking on that panel, and she is so fantastic, so everyone should come and see it. And she's also a, a top-notch podcaster. She is, actually. If any of our listeners have not checked out Past Present Podcast, if you like us, you will definitely like them. Um, so this event is called Bringing Truth Back, Reporting Facts in a Post-Truth era. And so we've got a really interesting group of people reflecting on the first 100 days of Trump's administration, um, which is definitely noted for its um, strained relationship with the press. And they're also thinking about what the future of journalism is at this real crossroads moment. So the people who are going to be on this panel are Nicole Hemmer, political historian and author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media, and the Transformation of American Politics. Um, She's joined by Laura McGann, Deputy Managing Editor of Politics and Policy Desk at Vox. And that panel is moderated by Sopan Deb, a 
culture writer for the New York Times and a former embedded reporter on the 2016 Republican presidential campaign. So again, this is Tuesday, May 2nd. Doors open at 6. The event is at 6.30. It's $10 for tickets, 5 for members, and we'll link to the event page on our show notes. And one of my picks happens one week after that on Tuesday, May 9th at 7 p.m., uh, we are hosting a program called Talking Privilege with Hari Kondabolu and Jordan Carlos. Hari Kondabolu is, um, they're both comedians. And sometimes um, it's comedians who make it easier for us to explore uncomfortable issues. And certainly discussing privilege, especially if it implicates yourself, mm-hmm. is not the most comfortable thing to do. But it's easier to do if you're laughing. If you're laughing. And so they're both comedians. Hari's um, latest album is called New Material Night Volume 1. And Jordan Carlos is formerly from The Nightly Show. And they'll be having an unmoderated conversation. Again, that's Tuesday, May 9th at 7 p.m. There are tickets for this. It's $10 for non-members, $5 for members. But if you are a listener to Flatbush in Maine, hopefully by all of the events you've been hearing about over the last year and attending, certainly you've come to see the value of becoming a member. So please do that. And we look forward to seeing you at at our events coming up. And with this 13th episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Lucky number 13. Uh, Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to us for this past year. We look forward to your continued listening in the years to come. And spread the word. You can hear more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. And you'll find all of our past episodes that hopefully you've been inspired to go check out as a result of today's retrospective. Retrospective. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. And our production associate is Andrew Kaberline. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.